Hello, welcome to Debrief, a King's Chambers podcast. My name is Nigel Poole. The Debrief podcast aims to provide an analysis of issues in the field of clinical negligence and healthcare law, and we hope that it will be of use and interest to lawyers and non-lawyers alike. We've taken a short break after our first nine episodes, and our next series will bring you a series of conversations with individuals who've been involved in clinical negligence and related litigation, and there's no one better to start with than my present guest. Not many clinical negligence cases become known to a wider public beyond the lawyers who practice in this area, and very few decisions can truly be called landmark judgments. Only one or two become known by a single name, like Bolam or Belitho. To that very exclusive list can be added a third. This was a judgment of the Supreme Court in 2015. It laid down the legal test for informed consent to treatment, It laid to rest any lingering doubts that medical paternalism could outweigh patient autonomy. That case was Montgomery and Lanarkshire Health Board, now known simply as Montgomery. And I'm delighted to welcome Nadine Montgomery to the Debrief podcast. Nadine, welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me. Now, Nadine, I know you have a law degree and you're about to start studying a master's in law what, what area of law are you going to be focusing on? Well, surprise, surprise. I would like <laughs> to obviously concentrate my research on informed consent um, since obviously my case and it's meant so much to me that I kind of want to continue looking into this area and developing it. So, you, well, originally your first degree wasn't in law at all, is that right? No, that's right. It was a science degree. Yeah. So was your interest in law, did that develop as a result of the case or was that something you were already interested in? Yeah, no, absolutely. As a result of the case, it was a long case for 15 years. So learning about the legal process, the litigation process was, I find it fascinating. And um, I really wanted to learn more. So that's why I went into that afterwards. Have you studied your own case? Well, I've, I've, I don't know if I've studied it, but yes, <laughs> I've definitely read it many times. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's very interesting how the case has changed the law. And um, I really, I, I kind of want to move forward with that. I sort of have a vision of you sitting in a lecture theatre and, <laughs> <laughs> and the lecturer talking about your case. And uh, do, I mean, when you when you did your law degree, did your other students, fellow students, know? No, not many of them. Maybe like one or two close friends. I mean, mm-hmm. even our lecturer didn't know he. <laughs> in our delict lectures, I think you have taught. We call yes. it delict in Scotland. Yeah. Um, our lecturer um, gave um, my case, Montgomery case, a three-star seal of approval, and he spoke about it. And um, it was quite hard sitting, taking notes in a case that um, obviously I know all about. And I was a bit kind of nervous about what he was going to say, but he was very positive, and um, all the the students took notes. So it was good. Yeah. Well, you. I've called it your case, but of course it's a case that you brought on behalf of your son. That's correct. Sam. Um, Now, some cases involving children are anonymised, so we know them as, you know, X against Mm -hmm. whatever health trust. But in your case, of course, it wasn't anonymised. You've always been happy to talk about the case and to, you know, have your name associated with it and 
Sam's name and, and so on. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, I think because it wasn't, wasn't just about Sam, it was about a kind of wider aspect of wanting um, change within the UK. So that's that didn't bother me at all. Yeah. Um, and Sam was born, well, it's, it was 20 years ago last month, wasn't it? That's For, first of October 1999. A long time ago. And... He's, he's suffered lifelong injuries as a result of the events of his birth. Um, how, is, how is he doing now? So now he, he's actually doing really well. Um, he was obviously diagnosed with cerebral palsy aged three months and left cerebral palsy. But now he's 20 years old, as you said. He's now at university. He's studying software engineering. He's very intelligent. But he has a lot, obviously a lot of difficulties. He has a kind of dyskinetic type of cerebral palsy, so he's quite jerky and shaky, so... Fine motor skills are hard for him, such as writing. So he adapts, he uses a laptop. Um, he has a sort of slow, abnormal gait. And um, he's has calipers to walk, but he's 20 now. Trying to convince him to keep them on is, like, impossible now. <laughs> um, he finds it difficult to motor plan around a room. He bumps into things, he bumps into people. So he has a lot of difficulties. Um, but he's doing very, very well. And he's, you know, despite what happened to him, we're, we're all very pleased. Yeah. So... If we could go back to not just his birth, but the antenatal care that you had. Okay. If you, if, if you can talk us through some of that. What, you, you yourself are diabetic. That's right. And you are, you're slight of stature. That's right, I'm five foot tall. Yeah. So were, were you a high risk was the birth high risk? Was that um, so, something that was recognised? Yeah, well, in 1999, type 1 diabetics were considered high risk. I'm not sure what the situation is now. I would imagine it's the same. Um, there's specific areas that they ha- have to look into, such as the growth of the baby, um, blood pressure, um, things like that. So I attended what was called back then a joint diabetic obstetric clinic. And then that was quite a novel concept. There was maybe one other clinic like that in Scotland Um, And this was to manage the high-risk type 1 diabetic patients. And during that period, I was looked after by both a consultant obstetrician and a consultant diabetologist, as well as all the other um, midwives, nursing staff, diabetic specialist nurses. I had absolutely fantastic antenatal care that way. And I was looked after very well. Um, As the pregnancy progressed, I had serial fortnightly ultrasounds. And that was when they looked into the growth estimated fetal weight of the baby. So was Sam known to be a large baby? Yes, you, you were, yeah. Sam was. He was, <laughs> as the, the pregnancy went on towards the third trimester, they would pro- plot a centile chart. And he was on the 50th centile, progressing up towards the 95th centile. And I think at my last scan, at 36 weeks, he was on the 95th centile. So he was known to be very large. Right. And did that raise any concerns in your mind and did you discuss those with your obstetrician who I think was uh, a Mrs McClellan that's right yeah yeah. well during this period I raised my concerns repeatedly with my consultant obstetrician and particularly about my ability to be able to deliver this large baby given his size and also my small stature Um, you know as you said I'm only five foot but I was always met with reassurances of you know you don't need to worry we're looking after you you know leave that to us don't concern yourself um, my concerns were never addressed. Right. And so when it came to the um, labour uh, and delivery, um, well, do you want to tell us what, what happened? His, his shoulder got 
stuck. It's known as shoulder dystocia, yeah, isn't that's right. it? Yeah. So I was brought in for induction. Instead of waiting to 40 weeks, I was brought in for induction early because of the size of him. And I was brought in at 38 plus five weeks. Um, and they induced me and I went to labour really quickly. And I was taken to the labour ward. Um, during that time, there was many episodes of the CTG trace being perhaps abnormal and the nurses, the midwives would go and get a doctor and then we were reassured that everything was okay. This went on for quite a long time. Um, the next day, however, I was given oxytocin to augment the contractions because I'd failed to progress. Um, I had an epidural for pain relief and then about 5pm the next day, I had quite a high temperature, I was starting to become unwell and the fetal heart rate was now concerning and I was advised that at this point we would go to theatre for what was called a trial of forceps. Yeah. So this is the point I was brought a consent form by a fairly junior doctor and I signed a bit of paper that said basically that, you know, this is what we're going to do. All it said was trial of forceps. And at that point, I actually asked again, what does this mean? And the doctor told me that when we're in theatre, we'll be able to assess you better and we'll be able to see if we can apply forceps or not. And if we can't, don't worry, like we will proceed to caesarean section. Everything is fine. You don't need to worry. She'll have a better view in theatre. And I was quite happy with that. So you were taken to theatre? I was taken to theatre. And, um, well, what what happened then? So in theatre, my epidural was topped up. And obviously I'm lying flat on my back, so I can't really see much. But I could feel a lot of pulling and pressure. And I remember one of the the stirrups broke. I I feel it was from the, the pulling, but that was disputed, so maybe not. Um... And then what seemed like a long time, but probably wasn't a couple of minutes, probably only a couple of minutes, the anaesthetist just very gently and calmly told me we're going to put you to sleep. And at that point, I knew something was seriously wrong. I didn't know what, I I didn't know if it was me or the baby, but I knew something was very wrong. And then I went to sleep. Right. So it was only really in the coming days that I found out actually what happened. Yes. And I mean, as you've already described, it, it, you said that Sam was diagnosed with cerebral palsy at three months. Was it evident from birth that um, he, he suffered some kind of injury? Yeah, well, af- uh, after his delivery when he was born, he um, well, his head, obviously, that shoulder dystocia was stuck for 12 minutes, mm-hmm. and he was obviously then stillborn. Thankfully, the paediatricians had enough time to, to get there to be prepared um, to help him. And he spent a long and difficult time in um, special care baby unit. He initially had his lungs ventilated. He suffered from seizures due to hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. And he had a trauma to his head, his face, his neck with subdural hematomas. He was diagnosed almost immediately with left Erb's palsy because he didn't move his left arm at all. But the cerebral palsy diagnosis came maybe around age three months. Yeah. So <clears throat> in short... His, his, he suffered shoulder dystocia, mm-hmm. or shoulder dystocia was encountered. <clears throat> it took 12 minutes, did it, from delivery of his head to full yeah. delivery. And during that time, he was um, deprived of oxygen. And so, and so he suffered neurological injury as well as the um, brachial plexus injury yeah. that, that, that was caused by overcoming the shoulder dystocia. Yeah, that's correct. So <clears throat> clearly you knew your son had suffered these severe injuries at what point would you say you began to think or began to have concerns about the care that you'd been given 
Well, afterwards, I mean, it obviously took me quite a long time to recover. And yeah. I had my hands full with a, a baby that was very unwell. Um, but despite, you know, a very basic explanation of what happened, I still didn't really fully understand what had happened in theatre. I wanted to understand what happened, um, all the manoeuvres they did to try and remove him and to understand, you know, do my own research. Could that have been prevented? Could it have been predicted? Um, and it was really through my sister's training in anaesthetics, and that included that doctors have a duty to fully consent patients, d discuss options and inform them of significant risks. That supported me in finding answers as to why this hadn't happened in my case. And we researched through um, GMC guidelines, obstetric college guidelines, what the risks of shoulder dystocia would be in my case. And as a type 1 diabetic, we found out that I had a very high risk of that happening. I had a 9 to 10% chance of the baby's shoulders being stuck. And I was really horrified to learn that, that people looking after me, two consultants I had looking after me, and nobody mentioned this to me, that this was a potential complication that could arise, despite me asking more than once to my consultant obstetrician. So if, I don't know, if you hadn't had a a sister who was a medical professional, do you think you'd have even got to that stage of knowledge? I or don't do you think know. <laughs> yeah, that's a really hard question to answer because I am quite analytical with my science degree. I do look into things and I knew something was wrong, but probably not to the extent, I probably wouldn't have researched it to the extent that my sister helped me research it. So mm. I was very privileged that I came from a family of doctors. Yeah. And when you had that information, did you address those concerns with the the Lanarkshire Health Board itself or with your with your obstetrician? So initially we wrote a very lengthy complaint letter and we addressed it to the trust but we asked the, the consultant in question answer so many questions all about the management of my labour and she did respond but we weren't happy with the response and we had a letter back from the general manager of the hospital saying that he'd conducted his own investigation and that he was happy that adequate you know, care had been given. He's very sorry for the sad outcome. Um, and I don't know, I always think it's a bit like marking your own exam paper, you know, a hospital looking into the conduct of their own. You know, it's not really, it's not a way forward and it shouldn't be happening nowadays, in my opinion. Um, so obviously, yes, we weren't happy with the, the result that we were given. And was it that that made you seek legal advice? Yeah, I think so, because it upset me because it appeared that no one recognised there was a deficiency in my care. And my concern was that if people didn't recognise that, then no positive changes would be made. And if no changes were going to be made, then it surely follows that this would happen again. So my goal became to ensure that no other women went through what I went through, or indeed any patient, and that the right discussions should be taking place between doctors and patients about risks, um, and they should be making their decisions together. Hmm. Now... Um, I can I can read about the case online because yeah. the judgments are published. It, it looks like it was two, it was two thousand and ten that your case was first heard in That's court, right. and in Scotland, uh, it's the court of outer session. Um, here it would be the high court or or the county court. It would have been the high court in this in this case. So that's eleven years after um, Sam was born. Yeah, it took a long time. Well, but broadly, why why was that? I think just the litigation process is, you know, known to be very lengthy. And also we had to have things like look into Sam's 
all his reports, his physiotherapy report, I think it would be hard to assess him at age two for what he needs maybe for the rest of his life. You know, I wouldn't give you a clear picture. So perhaps that had a lot to do with yeah. it as well. Yeah. And I think w without needing to go into detail, you had agreed the, we'd call them damages, you'd agreed yes. the compensation, subject, of course, to proving that yeah. the defendant was liable to you to pay that compensation. So that had been agreed. That had been agreed. Be before the trial. Yeah. So <clears throat> and you lost that trial. How, how long did it last? It went on for a long time. I think the initial proof was, I want to say, six weeks. And then we had a break, and then it started again the following year. Um, so it was quite lengthy. And, I mean, it was very detailed. We had two medical experts, the... Other side had two medical experts, so we had to hear evidence from so many different people. And then there was a lot of disputing about the CTG trace, so that almost went through minute by minute. If you can imagine a 24-hour period of how... <laughs> yeah. And everyone being questioned upon that, all four experts. So it was a very lengthy uh, court case. What were the issues, the main issues in, in the case at, at that first trial? You've mentioned that... Um, you were concerned that you hadn't been warned about the risk of shoulder dystocia right. at about 9 to 10%. Well, firstly, was that conceded that that was the extent of the the risk for for you, about, yes, we, about 9 to 10%? I think we everyone agreed on that. The point that they didn't agree on was out of that 9 to 10% risk was the only maybe a 0.1% um, risk of any grave harm. So that's the that was their defence, and that's what they focused on. So, so it's not not inevitable if you have shul if shoulder dystocia is encountered, it's not inevitable that the sort of injuries Sam suffered would be injured. That's right. in, in most cases, I presume, yes, it's overcome with manoeuvres, yeah. and the baby doesn't suffer any harm. I think that's correct. Or but any I think permanent harm. Yeah. Mm. But the problem with shoulder dystocia is that you don't know until you're in the middle of that shoulder dystocia which one is going to be severe. Mm. So you could say, okay, it's a 9 to 10% risk, only 0.1%, this could go really badly. But you don't know until that's happened which shoulder dystocia out of 10 women could be easily managed. So my argument was always, that, well, that should never, we should never have got to that position in the first place. And I think going back to what you were saying before, your case was... You'd raise concerns about your size and the baby's size and and, and, right. and how they corresponded. <clears throat> your case was you just weren't warned at all about any risk of shoulder dystocia or the complications of That's that. That's right. I had never even heard of the term shoulder dystocia until Sam was born. And actually it said on his little... Um, caught the little baby incubator they put them in Sam it said his name Montgomery then it said shoulder dystocia and I for a long time actually thought that's what his herbs palsy was called and I would tell my mum he's got shoulder dystocia on his left arm and she would say no that's I called it so I didn't even I hadn't even heard the term and was another issue at the trial the management of the labour and itself that's right yeah and I mean we can deal with that because you you lost on that issue yep and that never went any further in, on appeal, is that right? No, I think on appeal and to the inner house, we were still discussing oh, I see. that, yeah. um, but we were unsuccessful. Yeah, and um, that didn't end up, as we'll hear in a minute, the other part of the case did in the Supreme Court. That's right. Yeah. So in relation, I would think, especially uh, to the question of consent, your evidence was very important. So you gave evidence at the 
initial trial, did you? Yes. How did how did you find that it was, experience? It, it was very strange. I mean, if you've never been in a courtroom before, the the you know the whole theatre of it and the you know wigs and gowns and the formality is very intimidating. Um, and I don't think I ever thought for one minute that I would be quite aggressively challenged by the defence. Um, I don't know what I thought was going to happen, but obviously they, they gave me quite a hard time regarding my memory and things like that. Um, so yeah, it was a very, it was an experience that yeah, I wouldn't wish on anyone. Yeah, so your your evidence would have been relevant both to the conversations that you'd had with your obstetrician, That's right. but also as to what decisions you would have made if you had been warned about the risk of shoulder dystocia Absolutely. and complications of that. What, what was your position? What was your evidence? I think they asked me that in evidence. What If she had told me about these risks, what would I have asked for a caesarean section? And I think my words then were I would have bit her hand off for it. <laughs> like, you know, it's just of, of course. And herself, even in evidence, said that if she told every diabetic, type 1 diabetic, of a 9 to 10% risk, then every single one of them would want... a. a Caesarean section. So that was part of her evidence. Yes. It, when, when what? When asked to explain why she hadn't yeah. warned you of it. She said that it, she felt it would be against maternal interest to section every type 1 diabetic. So her position was really a general position about mothers in general. Yes. What, what did you think when you heard her give that evidence? It was like very hurtful. It was, it was shocking as well that to hear actually from a patient's point of view to think that you knew of something that could harm me and not just someone like an acquaintance or a friend but someone actually had a duty of care towards me and withheld I don't know if withheld is quite a strong word but didn't disclose that information to me I mean I've got a step that goes out to the, the back of my conservatory it's a bit wobbly and I tell everyone mind the step mind the step because I don't want anyone to fall and hurt themselves I do that because I'm a decent human being but if there was a risk that she knew about and she didn't tell me I think it's just not right. Mm. Um, when you were giving evidence, did you feel you'd done yourself justice? Did you feel you'd got your points across or not? I don't think you can in a court setting. I think that it's it's not like telling a story. It's very much you ask a question and you have to respond to that one question. So it's very fragmented and it doesn't follow like an event. Mm. Um, so no, probably not. But I think we got... You know, our team argued the points that they wanted to make well, but I didn't get to tell the full story of how I felt, what this has done to me and my family. Yeah. And you lost the case at trial. Yep. Um, well, I'm guessing that must have been a blow. Yeah, it was obviously devastating because I, I was convinced that what I was saying was right, that we shouldn't be making decisions for people without having them involved in the decision-making process because, after all, I live with the consequences. Sam lives with the consequences of a decision that someone made for me. You know, I should be involved in that and that was against GMC guidelines at the time. Um, so, yeah, I was absolutely devastated. Mm. And <clears throat> you had a decision to make about whether to seek to appeal the case and that that would go in Scotland to the equivalent of the Court of Appeal. That's the inner house. Isn't That's it? right. Was that a difficult decision to make? Um, no, I think that we would always have proceeded onwards. But at this point, I met my QC, Lauren Sutherland, and she. I think what's paramount in these cases is is excellent um, legal counsel, 
and she was as enthusiastic and as determined as me and I think it was almost like it was a match that was ma- meant to happen and she drove she drove it forward from that point right and you went to the uh, inner house and that case was decided in 2013 that's right so we're now 14 years yeah. <laughs> years on but you lost you lost again yeah we lost again you, were you were you downhearted then? Did you think that's it? Yeah, I thought um, at that point that was probably it, um, and it was devastating. And I remember thinking, well, I've not achieved anything, and that no one's listened to what I've been saying, so I don't actually know what the point of all this was. And I went through to Edinburgh. I remember going through to Edinburgh to meet with Colin McCauley and Lord and Sutherland and Fred Tyler and Joanna McCormack, all the legal team. And I was really upset on the train and my sister said, okay, come on, let's just, you know, dry your eyes. Just let, you know, and I wanted to go through and say thank you to them for everything they'd done. And I was prepared at that point, okay, this is as far as we can go. And at that point they had said, well, we want to go to the Supreme Court. We think you have a point of law now that we can push forward with informed consent. Um, And I was really taken aback. I was really surprised. Um, obviously I was delighted. I didn't know there was another uh, court we could go to at that point. I hadn't studied law. So this was great news. What what drove you on to take the case further to the Supreme Court? If, if you don't mind me asking, was it the money? Because no doubt that is an <laughs> important consideration in a case like this, is having compensation to be able to meet Sam's needs. Or was it something else? I don't, I don't think the case was ever about money because... I was very, very privileged. I came from a well-off family. My parents were doctors. Um, we didn't really need anything for Sam. We were managing. It, it was tough. It was very tough. But the point that, you know, I, I, I didn't get answers. And what I was saying conflicted with GMC guidelines. So I think the only way to make my point was to proceed onwards at that point. So... I, 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 that's what I wanted to do. When you started the case, did you think this is a really important point of principle and did you know enough about the way the law worked to think you were challenging a principle or that you it was important that it was established by the courts? No, well, it was a very important point of principle to me as a <laughs> yeah. human being. It was like my right to self-determination, my right to autonomy, and someone had taken that away from me. Um, but no, I did not understand... I always thought you went to court to get justice. I didn't really realise, you know, there's so many, you know, precedent that set. Bolam was like there, you know, we had Sidaway, we had Hunter and Hanley, we had all these tests. And, um, you know, for me, it was just, well, this is wrong, what happened to me and I want I want justice. So, no, I don't think I understood the, the legal aspects. Just a little detour then. You mentioned Hunter and Hanley. That That's more or less the Scottish equivalent of Bolam, isn't it? That's it's right. The, yeah. <clears throat> and, in fact, the decisions of... You know, the tests are pretty similar. So d- just for uh, the non-lawyers in particular, the question in relation to Bolam or the Hunter and Hanley test is, a doctor isn't negligent if they act in accordance with a responsible body yep. of other obstetricians, say, in, in this case. Um, and that was one of the reasons you'd lost, wasn't it? Because the courts had said, well, the way your obstetrician acted was yes. in accordance with a reasonable Well, that's body. it. They had two experts that said they would do what, you know, she had done. So that was 
a, you know, a, a body of doctors in yeah. effect. But we had a body of doctors. We had two experts that said, well, no, we wouldn't have. We would have advised the risks. Yeah. Um, so how do you, how could you ever win a case like that? Yeah. So you, you get permission to go to the Supreme Court. That's right. And that hearing, I think, was in, was it July 2014? That's right. And at some point, you must have learned they they were going to sit with seven judges. Yeah. They usually sit with five. Did that mean anything to you at the time? Well, when it you only meant something when it was explained to me. And um, my lawyer, Fred Tyler, explained how significant that was. And what he said was that they really only do that when there's, you know, a significant change that they're possibly considering and they want a full bench um and he gave me some examples of past cases where that had happened so not until that point so then i knew and even at that point if i wasn't successful somebody was listening to me i was really happy with that and another lawyer was brought into the case for the purpose of the supreme court hearing james badenoch QC. that's right he's an english qc yeah and <clears throat> How long did that hearing take? Was that a couple of days? That was just or? a couple of days, yeah. yeah it was and you've quick. talked about the formality of the Scottish courts and the wigs and gowns That's and so on. Right. It's different, isn't it, in the Supreme very Court? Very different. It's very casual. It's very um, almost informal in that, you know, they just sit like regular people in maybe suits, some in just shirts. Um, and it actually makes you feel, you know, they're there to for a reason. They're not there for the pomp and circumstance of the courts and the, you know... It was it was a really good experience from, you know, both a legal point of view for me wanting to go on and study law, and also for he from somebody listening to my case. Seven greatest minds in the UK actually listening to what I was saying. I could have asked for more. Who was the um, Who was the judge sitting in the middle? So that was Lord Newberger, right? And Lady Hill was deputy um, of the Supreme Court at that point. Yes, and did they ask a lot of questions as the advocates? They were very were, interested. Yeah. They asked a lot of questions. Um, Lady Hill asked me to stand up so she could see how tall I was, and that was quite <laughs> awkward because I had high heels and I had to quickly slip them off. And yeah. yeah, so yeah, they were very interested. What brooch was she wearing? I actually don't know. I wish I'd paid attention. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you had to wait quite a long time for the decision, though, didn't you? Um, I I had another Mar- year from there. Yeah, yeah. yeah so Mar- well, March two thousand fifteen. So That's right. yeah, eight months or so for the judgment. But did that feel like a very long wait? It, it it did, but I was used to that from the first two, but actually it didn't like bother me at that time because I knew that it didn't matter how long it took, that people were considering this seriously. Even if it took another five years, that would have been fine because I wanted them to really take into account everything that happened, all the points that were being raised. We also had the GMC intervene at the Supreme Court, so it was like really important that they understood things from that point of view too, as well as the patient's point of view. So yeah, I, it didn't bother me at all at that mm. stage. And when or how did you first hear about the outcome, about the judgment? Um, Fred Tyler phoned me and he told me. He asked me to pull over because I was driving. (laughs) I I had him on loudspeaker and he said pull over, so he told me. And we watched it um, live on the Supreme Court website. It was Lord Reid that gave the judgment. Oh, right. So so it was televised as, well, the hearing would have been televised. Yeah. But you weren't there when they actually formally handed... No, no, I wasn't there. You watched it on the telly. I don't think we knew when that... I think the solicitors probably knew when it was going to happen, but I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. And it was unanimous, was it? It was unanimous. All seven judges agreed with what we were being saying. It's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And was there a lot of um, sort of publicity about it? Were you involved in 
interviews? Was there a lot of interest in the case immediately afterwards? I think there probably was, but um, I know that was on the BBC News and STV News, and but not in terms of like interviews and things like that. I don't. We're quite a private family, believe it or not. So that at that stage, that was not important because it was very much, you know, oh, this patient has won. You know, the newspapers reporting has won damages. You know, we didn't win anything. You know, it was never... The, the wording in, in these newspapers has to change as well. This was to compensate my son and hopefully provide him with what he needed to reach his full potential, whatever that may be. Um, it wasn't some sort of lottery win. But no, we, we, we stayed out of things like that. And yeah. And in a nutshell, <clears throat> the decision was that in terms of giving advice or warnings about risks to someone in your position or indeed any patient facing a decision of the kind that you would have had if you'd been given that that sort of advice. It isn't a, a Bolam test no. as to what a reasonable obstetrician would do, um, but a test of um, taking reasonable care, but to ensure that the patient is aware of the material risks and what would be material to them in making their decision. Exactly. Yeah. That was the point of principle that you always wanted to be established, wasn't it? Well, that's it. That was, I mean, I couldn't have asked for any more than, you know, the, the point that, you know, for any patient going on, you what's important to them? Like, for example, I don't know, I want, I want to say an opera singer, right? Imagine you were an opera singer and you were having surgery in your vocal cords or something. You know, that's going to be important to them. They might not want to take a risk, around that they might not want to come out with their vocal cords damaged. This has to be what's material to, you know, the patient. And I think that these were very important points. Um, were, were you ever offered or given an, an apology by the Defendant Health Board? No, nope, never. Right. Well, if early on in the process, when you'd raised your complaint, you'd felt it had been listened to, and an apology had been made. What What do you think you would have... Difficult question, a yeah, long time I ago, but what do you think you'd have done? I think if I knew that the consultant in question had changed her practice and I knew that she was sorry for what she had done and that she had listened to her patient, um, she had discussed the risks and all the options for delivery, no point was a decision section ever discussed with me. And... We made that decision together, exactly as the GMC guideline states, working in partnership. If I knew that she would do that in future, and I knew that um, she'd changed her practice accordingly, then I think probably I would have been happy. But the fact that no one even noted a deficiency in my care was the driving force for going forward. And just looking at the, the whole legal process that you were involved in from beginning to end. Okay. Obviously, it ended successfully successfully for you, but if there was one thing that you could change about the legal process, what would that be? Oh, one thing only. <laughs> um, okay, can I say two things? <laughs> yeah, feel free. Okay, well, first of all, the length of time. So, obviously, the litigation process is notoriously long. So, from initial naming blaming was in 1999 to final resolution in 2015. And I think for... Other people, not for myself, but uh, maybe a mother who has a child with profound disabilities and she would need some sort of resolution before that. That's far too long. So the, probably the length of time would be good to change. And also maybe, you know, we had access to legal aid, which was fantastic. But what about other people who don't? Um, 
I think there's, you know, the, the relentless cutbacks in that area is preventing access to justice. So I would like those kind of things looked at in terms of the litigation process. Well, that's all for part one of my conversation with Nadine Montgomery. Please listen to the next part in which we'll talk about the decision itself and some of the ramifications of it. Links to any cases we discuss during these two parts are on the fact sheet that accompanies this episode and which is available by email from podcasts at kingschambers.com. And you can listen to all our podcasts on your favourite platform or by going to the resources and training section of the King's Chambers website. For now, thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.